All right, so <clears throat> in today's Sunday School, um, we're going to continue walking through and interacting with an article by the late Greg Bonson, um, who was a Calvinist philosopher, apologist, and debater. <clears throat> the article by Bonson that we're working through is called The Inerrancy of the Autographer. So last week, Pastor Ron walked through a section of that article called The Biblical Attitude, which dealt with how Jesus and the apostles viewed the copies that they would have had access to as still authoritative. This week, we'll talk about restricting the idea of inerrancy without error to the original writings only, not their copies. So only the original manuscripts of scripture are without error, not their copies. <clears throat> so one of the strongest characteristics, so before I, we continue that, um, that idea of restricting inerrancy to the originals, I wanted to give sort of a, a little uh, context for this, a little background, and then we'll get back into uh, dealing with that specifically. <clears throat> One of the strongest characteristics of the written word is the fact that it's objective. The oral word can also be objective, but it doesn't have the flexibility or the lasting strength of the written word. Our memory is imperfect. So we're thinking about written word versus oral word, the oral tradition. <clears throat> so written, of course, it's written down. Oral would be uh, communicating something verbally, orally, and in that way it being passed down from person to person, generation to generation. So with the oral tradition, one of the drawbacks is that our memory is imperfect. Um, we've all, I'm sure, heard a song a thousand times, but at times we still sometimes forget the lyrics, or even if we know the lyrics, we switch the words around, right? So we, we have faulty memories. We don't uh, remember as we want to. Again, our memory is imperfect. And there also can be, in this oral tradition, a temptation or a desire to change or pervert the oral word. So again, we're talking about the word being transmitted or passed down from generation to, to, to generation, orally versus in written form. One of the weaknesses of having revelation in oral form or tradition is that it is much more likely to have different kinds of corrupting influences that come from man's imperfect abilities. He's fallen and his sinful nature. Um, like I just mentioned, uh, lapses in memory, we forget, or even intentional distortion. Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch Calvinist and theologian said, to curb these forces, God casts his word into written form thereby achieving greater durability, fixity, purity, and catholicity. Greater durability, fixity, it's fixed, it's kept, purity, and catholicity. Now, by catholicity there, I don't mean uh, the Roman Catholic Church, not that understanding. Catholicity just means um, unified, one, one, one. <clears throat> So unity, basically. A written document can be distributed universally through repeated copying, and yet it can be preserved through different means from generation to generation. In this way, it can function as a fixed standard, which we can use to test all doctrines of men, 
and as a pure and untainted guide to how we ought to live. So if we have the written word, when other things come, because we have the written word and it's fixed, it's the standard, we can actually compare different things to what we have written in front of us rather than um, trying to remember um, what, what it was and is, is this thing sort of like what the Bible is saying, is it not? We have it, the written word, so it makes it easier to compare those things, um, which also becomes the rule for how we ought to live. Still, this way of preserving the word of God, by way I mean the written form, itself creates difficulty for the doctrine of scriptural inerrancy, a difficulty that we'll talk about. So, a written word could have advantages over oral tradition, but it's not exempt from change or error. The written word can have advantages over oral tradition, but that doesn't mean it's exempt from change or error. The spreading of God's word by textual transmission and translation opens up the door to variances or changes. By, so these variances are between the original writings, the autographer, when I say autographer, I mean the original writings, and those secondary writings, the copies. So there's a distinction between those two. So the possibility of having modification drives us to refine and define the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. And what is biblical inerrancy again? Biblical inerrancy refers to the complete truthfulness of the Bible. So we're going to try to make a case that when, when we say restrict inerrancy to the, to the autographer, the original writings, we can only say that the original writings are without error, flawless, not their copies. Okay. So the question then becomes, does inerrancy, um, infallibility, inspiration, relate to the original writings, the autographer, the copies of the original writings, and other translations, or to both? Okay, so that's what we're going to try and answer. So the view that has been held throughout the centuries and is common in the evangelical world today is that the inerrancy or infallibility of the scriptures is restricted only to the original autographer, those first manuscripts. Richard Baxter said, no error or contradiction is in it, the scripture, but what is in some copies is by the failure of preservers, transcribers, printers, and translators. B.B. Warfield also says that immediate inspiration applies only to the autographer of scripture, not to the copies. The original text has been providentially kept pure in transmitted text, but not in every or any one copy. And that present translations were adequate for the needs of God's people in every age. So I want to take a minute to sort of interact with this part of what B.B. Warfield said in, uh, in this quote. He says, the original text has been providentially kept pure in the transmitted text, but not in every or any one copy. And so the present translations were adequate for the needs of God's people. So how can he say that when what we have, even today, are copies of copies of copies? How can he say that 
um, God's word has been providentially kept pure in transmitted texts, though not in one itself. How can that be when we have copies of copies of copies? Uh, Pastor Ron walked through this last week, and it was extremely helpful to see how the to see the attitude of Jesus and the apostles and some Old Testament figures uh, to copies of that they would have had, had access to. They had no problem quoting from copies as authoritative. So Jesus and the disciples would have been, when Jesus goes into the temple and he's reading from Isaiah, he's reading from a copy. It's not the original, but he still says, essentially, thus says the Lord, this has been fulfilled in your day. How can he do that authoritatively with a copy? Well, he didn't have any problem with that. I don't think we should either. So what about us? Should our confidence be lined up with his? Um, Warfield seems to think so, and I do too. Again, he says, the original text has been providentially kept pure and transmitted text, but not in every or any one copy. And so the present translations are adequate for the needs of God's people. So how can we still be confident is the question again. Um, we'll dig into this more in a couple of weeks, but I want to sort of impasse and talk about um, a little bit of this, top, this idea of our copies still being reliable. So <clears throat> slide, slide, back. Okay, so the Greek New Testament has uh, 140,000 words about. There are about... 400,000 variants within the Greek New Testament. When I say variant, I mean any place in the manuscripts where there is a difference in wording, including word order, flipping words around, omission or addition of words, even spelling errors. So again, the Greek New Testament has around 400,000 variants. We have so many variants because we have so many manuscripts, over 5,800. So it's important to remember that the biblical manuscripts we have today are in 99% agreement with one another, which is amazing and super encouraging. Again, the, the biblical manuscripts we have today are in 99% agreement with one another. Yes, there are some minor differences, but the vast majority of the biblical text is identical from one manuscript to another. Most of the differences are in punctuation, word endings, minor grammatical issues, word order, etc. Easily explainable as scribal mistakes. No important theological or biblical issue is lost or thrown into doubt by any supposed error or contradiction. Biblical manuscripts from the 15th century agree completely with manuscripts from the third century. Okay, so that's 99% of errors. Um, about 90% of scribal errors, again, are non-essential. Um, even secular critics like Bert Ehrman would say that. So let me show you what I mean by this. Okay, so I write, Sarah is going to the mall. Any, nobody's named Sarah here. Sarah's going to the mall. I don't want her to be offended or think I was taking her. Sarah's going to the mall. 
Sarah is going to the mall. What's the difference between this one and that one? T-O-O, it's misspelled. Sarah is I going to the mall. What's the difference between this one and that one? I is misspelled. Sarah is going, the slang version, going to the mall. There's a difference. So th there's a difference here. There's error, to I going. But this is the original. Sarah is going to the mall. Do you still get the picture of what's happening? Where's, where's Sarah going? What's her name? <laughs> so this is the point I'm trying to make. Little errors, scribal errors like this, don't strip away anything from the understanding of Scripture. No doctrinal or theological point is stripped out or taken away by small scribal errors. That makes sense? Okay. Hopefully that's, that's helpful. <clears throat> so again, no major doctrine is lost in these minor errors. You can still clearly see what's being communicated here. Okay, so... What about the other 10% of errors that are more significant and do have theological implications? What about them? Do they strip us of our confidence in our copies? Where's my Bible? I don't even have my Bible. That's a shame. I like to have visual. Our Bibles, our copies, right? Does the ten, these other 10% of errors strip us from the confidence in our Bibles? Um, okay. <clears throat> Where am I at? So this is where the very thing that critics say hurt the, the validity of the Bible actually strengthens our argument for accuracy in our translation tradition. And what's that? The 400,000 variants and the 5,800 manuscripts. <clears throat> because there are so many variants, we can easily compare any one copy to the whole host of others to see if it lines up. So it's actually not a weakness, it's actually a strength. So for instance, if a large group of manuscript copies say in 1 John, Jesus is the Son of God, and one says Jesus is not the Son of God, then we can compare and pretty easily identify them and say with this old Sesame Street jingle, one of these things is not like the other, one of these things does not belong. Y'all remember that? <laughs> I ain't gonna sing it, but you see what I'm saying. So having so many manuscript copies and even variants actually serves us well in this regard. So don't let your confidence be uh, stirred or shaken when somebody says, well, your Bible, it has, you have all these variants and your Bible has scribal errors. True, but let me explain that and why we can still be confident in this, okay? So, that for the sake of your soul's encouragement. Um, yes, go ahead. Um, that doesn't include, though, that only includes translations, not paraphrases. Is that correct? I'm sorry, one more time, what was the last part of that? That wouldn't include paraphrases, right? Not real translations where the person puts it in their own words. Right, so, if it's in, and we're going to talk about that as well, but... Okay, well Okay. <laughs> okay. But we are going to talk about that as, as we get into this explanation um, for restricting inerrancy to the originals, because that's, that's included within that, that conversation. Okay. So 
There is nothing illogical about holding that an infallible text has been fallibly transmitted or copied. And the fact that the document is a copy of holy writ does not mean that it is holy right. See what I did there? <laughs> I didn't make that up. That is not original. <laughs> so again, uh, the fact that a document is, is a copy of holy writ does not make it holy right. Now, we would agree with those who say that there is no fundamental reason why God could not have preserved from flaws the scribes who copied the Bible. would agree with that. But I don't think we should assume that copies of Scripture were the result of inspiration and without error unless the Bible explicitly teaches us that. Okay, so we have to maintain that distinction. And I'll talk about that a little more. The Bible doesn't give divine inspiration or infallibility to copies, and neither should we. Not everything that Luke or John or Peter or James wrote was divinely inspired, but only those things that we have in the canon were divinely inspired. So Peter, uh, John, whoever, John could have written something, um, a letter to... I don't know, a friend of his, hey, I'm going to the market. That's not divinely inspired because John wrote it. What's divinely inspired that John wrote is in the Bible only, right? So we have to maintain that distinction as well. The fact that inspiration is an extraordinary gift and is unique means that it is restricted and it is strictly applied, which also means that we cannot assume it applies to anybody or anything. Okay, so this God's uh, inspiration and infallibility is a unique and special thing. And it's how we distinguish one truth from error and what should be in the canon and what should not be in the canon. If a person says that the scribes of the Bible were inspired in their work and automatically infallible in their results, then the burden of theological proof lies not on us, but them. As things stand in scripture, inspiration refers to the original words produced under the Holy Spirit and not to the production of scribal copies. Let me have someone read 2 Peter 1.21 for us. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thank you. The fact that the original scripture has its origin in God does not mean that the copies as textual copies also have their origin in God, but that the message they embody traces ultimately back in some measure to God's revelation. Okay, I'll say that again. The fact that the original scripture had its origin in God does not mean that the copies as textual copies also have their origin in God, but the message that they embody and communicate traces ultimately back to God in some measure. Quote, if the scripture is God-breathed, it naturally follows that only the original is God-breathed. If, if, if holy men of God spoke from God as they were born by the Holy Spirit, then only what they spoke under the Spirit's bearing is inspired. It would certainly be unwarranted to maintain that copies of what they spoke were also inspired 
since these copies were not made as men born of the Holy Spirit. They were therefore not God-breathed as was the original, E.J. Young. Greg Bonson says here, it should now appear clear that restriction of inerrancy to the autographer, those original writings only, is based on the unwillingness of evangelicals to contend for the precise infallibility or inerrancy of the transmitted copies. What is he saying? It's logical, it makes sense to say that only the originals are without error and not copies. Um, and you'll see why. As opposed to just explaining it and then reading it, I'll just read it and then we can talk about it. <clears throat> so why is this? Scripture nowhere gives us ground to hold that its transmission and translation would be kept without, without error by God. Scripture doesn't tell us that, so we can't say that. There is no scriptural authorization for holding that God will perform the perpetual miracle of preserving his written word from all error and it's being recorded from one copy to another. Since the Bible does not claim that every copier, translator, typewriter, and printer will share the infallibility of the original document, Christians should not make the same claim. That doctrine is not supported by scripture and Protestants are committed to sola scriptura, scripture alone. So the Bible needs to tell us that if we're gonna communicate that is true. So here's the basic rationale for restricting inerrancy to the original document of God's word, those prophetic and apostolic writings. There is biblical evidence for the inerrancy of the autographer, the original writings, but not for the inerrancy of the copies. The distinction and restriction are therefore necessary. So God hasn't promised that the printing press at its advent and all of its uses is going to print the Bible um, infallibly or without error. It, 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 it makes sense logically. Um, any, um, he hasn't promised that every copyist or scribe as he copies scripture from one generation to another is not going to have a slip up in his pen. Again, he's God. Of course he can do that. But has the Bible said he will do that is the question. And so we have to go where the Bible goes and we have to stop where the Bible stops. But again, this doesn't strip us of our confidence. And that's what I want us to, to get. And I hope you're getting it as I, I work through this. Everybody knows that no book was ever printed, much less hand copied, that didn't have some error in the process. And so we do not hold that, we do not hold the author responsible for these errors in an ordinary book, and so we should not hold God responsible for them in this extraordinary book we call the Bible. B.B. <clears throat> um, Warfield says something on this that I think helps us to see why it's logical to restrict our valuation of literary works to the original text. Um, in other words, you can't judge the author um, on, or you can't evaluate him or evaluate him on his writing if you're reading an error of what he originally wrote. Okay? <clears throat> in other words, he would say that common sense tells us that the, identi that the identity of a literary text is determined by its original autograph. 
Um, the first com completed personal, and by, by autograph, B.B. Uh, Warfield means the first completed personal or approved transcription of a unique word or group of words, the original writing. <clears throat> so in our context here, we're talking about the Bible. When a slight mistake or distortion creeps into a copy of a literary work, it creates a somewhat different literary text with some degree of originality. Although the copy is different or distinct because it's not the original, it is still tied to the original to some degree. Although our copies are distinct from the originals, that does not mean that we don't care if they are accurate. Though our Bible contains minor scribal errors, we still care deeply for their accuracy. Now, I'm going to give an example of this in a sec. Uh, the modern author wouldn't have an issue, or I'm sorry, what modern author wouldn't have an issue if an edition of one of his plays had hundreds of words scattered here and there um, from corruption by typists or um, compositors or proofreaders? They would definitely have an issue with that. Um, one can no more permit just a little corruption to pass unheeded in a transmission of a literary work than just a little sin is possible in the garden. Um, any composer is going to have issues with his work being um, mistranslated or miscopied. He's going to have problems with that. The actual value of an author's literary work can't safely or rightly be estimated if we're not sure whether the text that we have in front of us represents the author's work or the originality of some scribe. Okay, a lot there. This is what I mean. Let's say um, Pastor Jack writes a sermon. This is a little quiz for y'all. What is Pastor Jack preaching to right now? Or what's the title of his sermon, the series? Living under the influence. Living under the influence. I'm going to tell Pastor Jack, y'all a little slow with that one. Living <laughs> under the influence. So let's say I take Pastor Jack's sermon and I copy that sermon and I make a scribal error. I'm the scribe. I make a scribal error. <clears throat> Instead of saying, you must live under the influence of the Holy Spirit, I write, you must lie under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I simply leave out the V and the word live. Now, I'm not saying lie, lie down. I mean lie to fail, to tell an untruth. You must lie under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Would you judge Pastor Jack as evil for my copying error? Of course not. If I copied the wrong word, would you evaluate Pastor Jack based on that error and say that his theology is off? You wouldn't. That would be unfair and untrue. I'm responsible for that error, not Pastor Jack. He originally wrote, live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I wrote, lie under the influence. I transmitted it, translated it, lie under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This principle is also true for God's word. What we say about the Bible in our evaluation of it should be restricted to what God originally said in his original text. <clears throat> Not um, transmitted or translations of that or even paraphrases. So all of those are included there. We have to um, 
and I hate using the phrase judge God. That's ridiculous. We have to um, say God is holy <laughs> by the character, but by virtue of what he wrote in his original text, not, um, not or the originality of scribes. Okay. <clears throat> so in our scenario, me being the intermediate scribe, you sort of see the picture there. So just as Pastor Jack is not to be held accountable for my misinterpreting his words or my errors as I copied from his sermon, uh, the same principle is true. God is not to be held responsible for scribal errors as they copy from the original manuscripts. It is the Bible that we declare to be of infallible truth, the Bible that God gave us, not the corruptions and slip-ups which scribes and printers have given us. Again, B.B. Warfield. So absolute truth can be transmitted to God's word, but not to the words that are the result of errors by scribes and printers. Okay, are y'all still with me? Yes? I got a question on that. If, Go for it. If we recognize there are errors, all they are, where is the standard that we can say this is an error? Some of them are obvious. Like, for instance, we know that we would never see in Scripture lie under the Holy Spirit. Right. We know it's a split. But in the cases where we say it's an error, right. then obviously if we can say something is an error, then we know what the truth is. Exactly. So, That's exactly so the point. Come, right. Like I, and I'm just going to almost answer my question. I guess throughout the church, there has been people that paid attention to details. Right. So the church speaks on its own text and say, okay, I think this is a little bit weak over here. Right. And quite frankly, even when we read modern commentaries, and it's not the original, they'll say something about, like, say, John MacArthur will say, well, right. this particular rendition is weak. Well, how can he say that? He's got to have an absolute standard somewhere. So That's a great point. Instead of being, like, say, uh, okay, there are errors, therefore I can't really believe the Bible. No, it forces you as a Christian to say, hey, I'm going to tap into the body, I'm going to tap into the fellow believers, the commentaries, the whatever, right, right. and then get to it in the end. And right. it's, it's a constant process. Right. So, anyway, I don't know if I'm making sense. No, yeah, that's... It reinforces, hey, I can really trust this text even though there are human errors into it, because right. my God is so sovereign that he can overrule those scribal errors and we can still believe his word to be his word because it will accomplish that right. which it is sent for. Yes. You almost read one of my paragraphs. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Amber. <laughs> the ending of Mark, there are some of the scripts that does not have Right. 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 So the ending of Mark, the... Um, what's another passage? I was studying through the um, adultery uh, uh, pericope. Okay, now this is a, <laughs> I'm not sure I have time to um, go through that now, but um, quickly, textual critics, um, so all of us are not textual critics. I'm not a textual critic, um, but we do have textual critics who have given their lives to looking at manuscripts, studying manuscripts to discern what's there, what should not be there by that very, by those variants and those 5,800 copies. So um, some things maybe showed up later on in church history in later centuries, and some look at that and say, well, I don't think we should add that. Some look at it and say, well, it seems to line up, we should add it. So that's a whole conversation, and we could spend a class on that, but um, textual critics have done 
a lot of that legwork for us. They pretty much do that legwork for us. Um, and so uh, Dan Wallace, James White, Michael Kruger are some names to maybe look at and see what they're saying about those passages. But that's a good question. And I like talking about that. But I can't now. Um, okay. <clears throat> Norman, you stole all my fire, bro. Um, I'm going to read it anyway. So, the identity of the Bible or the scriptures has to be determined by the autographic text, what God originally said. And the word inerrancy, without error, can only be legitimately applied to that text, regardless of how many manuscript errors um, are in that specific text. So, where we can't be certain that a manuscript reflects the autographic text, God's word, we can't rightly judge it lest we judge wrong and judge God by something that he doesn't even give his own stamp of approval to. In other words, I can't base my evaluation of God on something written about God that God didn't say about himself. That makes sense? Again, I can't base my evaluation of God on something written about God that God doesn't say about himself. So... Um, actually, we're going we're gonna to talk about this in a little bit. But one time I was teaching a Sunday school class. Uh, man, that was a long time ago. Maybe four or five years ago. And it was um, a class on um, the Bible, obviously. <laughs> but it was dealing with uh, how we understand the Bible or something like that. I can't think of it now. But um, one of my, in, my, in one of my examples on, on this topic, I had a message Bible. If you have a message Bible, please don't be offended. Um, but I was reading some part of the message Bible, and it just clearly butchered <laughs> a passage of Scripture. And I was like, clearly, this is not, and I confidently, this is not the Word of God. This is a slaughter of the Word of God. And we can know that, again, because we have so many uh, manuscripts, uh, variants that come down to us, textual critics do this work, they bring it down to us. I go to the store and I buy an ESV study Bible. And even in the front of your Bibles, you can see how it was translated, thought from thought, word for word, etc. Um, but that work has been done for us. So when we see something, even today, and I'm, I'm going to talk about it. Um, we're going to talk about the wicked Bible. Brace yourselves. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> That's blasphemous. It's but you'll, you'll see what I'm saying. Um, the Bible's not wicked. Um, okay, where was I? <clears throat> um, okay, so this is why textual critics spend their lives comparing manuscripts to make sure that what's being translated and our modern translations is in line with the original writings. So again, where we can't, um, where we can't be certain that a manuscript reflects that autographic text, God's words, we must refrain from judgment and reserve the evaluation for the original. And again, this is especially true in regards to God's word and scripture because they are uniquely at the communication of God to man and human language. They have the unique status of being not only human in quality, but from God. God's word is not only human in quality, but from God. For I did not receive it from any man, Paul speaking here, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, Paul, again, here, writing his letter to the Thessalonians. Um, 
And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you received the word of God, you heard it from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, me, but as what it really is. What's that? The word of God, which is at work in you believers. Okay, so it's uniquely men, but it's uniquely God. So having those original writings of, and God's word and, and the words of God as special and in a unique category is the very foundation of the church's distinction between canonical and non-canonical. To put it in another way, those original writings and their inerrancy is how the church distinguishes what should be in the Bible from what should not be in the Bible. Only what God himself has said determines the standard of proving Christian truth claims as theologically authoritative. Bonson says, for that reason, the textual reading of the Bible that results from scribal errors cannot be raised to divinely authoritative from God simply because it has Holy Scripture placed on the cover. What constitutes God's own word is not flexible and changing message, rather unique and standardized. If we don't hold to the fact that only those original writings were infallible and restrict inerrancy to those only, then ultimately we say that anything that's placed between the covers of a Bible is God's inspired word. And of course, we can't say that. And if that is the case, then we, usually, then we actually say that the Bible says something that it doesn't say. And what is that? We're basically saying that all scribes copying the text are infallible, and printing presses and printers are also infallible. Successive copying errors can possibly destroy the message of God completely. Would we still even then say it's inspired? Of course not. Those who believe that even the copies are without error will have a hard time giving a reason for saying or explaining that copying mistakes are only sort of um, compartmentalized to areas of history and science, but not to areas of faith and practice. You see, if I say that everything in my um, translation here is without error, this is infallible, but what mistakes it does make, if it does make a mistake, will only be in the area of science and history, never on faith and practice. I can't make that argument and be consistent. <clears throat> so, um, and, or some do have this theory, and it's referred to as exclusive domain of infallibility. Infallibility in our Bibles is only um, set on certain, if it happens, it'll only be in certain topics, never on the topic of faith. They basically say that the copyists or printing presses will never copy or print errors in an area of faith or practice. But how does a printing press know, this is an obvious question in my mind, how does a printing press know when it's printing John 3.16 versus 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Chronicles 6.61? If we say, and if they say, well, he's God, of course he can keep a printing press or copyist from copying errors on certain subjects. I would say absolutely he's God. But then the question is, has God himself said he would do that? And the answer is no. He hasn't. Infallibility is restricted to the autographer only, the original 
documents. Okay. I, I know I'm saying a lot. I'm, I'm closing out here. <clears throat> um, earlier I said that successive or excessive copying errors on, the theolog on theological or doctrinal issues can possibly destroy the message of the Bible. And I asked, would we still even then say it's inspired? And I answered, no, I don't think so. Um, so quick story. The infamous Wicked Bible. Now y'all paying attention again. The infamous Wicked Bible of 1631 translated the seventh commandment, thou shalt commit adultery. Um, by mistake, they mistranslated and left out the word not. <laughs> That's horrible. Um, apparently, they printed a ton of copies with this misprint, and they were fined a ton of money by the Archbishop of London at the time. And these guys, Robert... Barker and Martin Lucas, the printers, got their printing licenses taken away. Man, like, if there were places in heaven, they may be like, <laughs> y'all get like a hotel while we get mansions. That's not true. I'm just joking. That's a joke. That's not true. Um, but they must have felt really horrible because it wasn't intentional. It was a mistake. Now, can we seriously say that this reading is inspired or infallible? If not... I would say, of course we wouldn't say that that's infallible. If not, then all evangelicals, all of us in some sense, are committed to restricting infallibility to the autographer, the original writings. Okay? So, in closing, even though we can be blessed without an errorless text and can formulate the great doctrines of the faith still, or have them, we, we, we get it, too far. We, we still see where Sarah's going. We can still formulate the great doctrines of the faith with small scribal errors. <clears throat> the inerrant and infallible originals, even though that's true, they're still extremely important. So this is still extremely important. Although we have this and we can formulate that accurately, that is, extremely, is still extremely important, the original. God can work through our errant copies to bring us to saving faith, and he does every day. But don't let that cause us to disregard the qualitative difference between the perfect original and the imperfect copy. They're still different. What I mean is an imperfect map can bring us to our destination, but it is still in its quality different from a strictly accurate map. The historical evangelical view has been one that restricts inerrancy to the autographer, God's original words. Francis Patton put it this way. Just so far as our present scripture text corresponds with the original document, it is inspired. By the way, we have extremely accurate copies, which we'll talk about in two weeks. But everybody's been waiting for it. Let's talk about the manuscripts and textual critics. I'm looking forward to it, but we'll do that in two weeks. Um, that's what I have for us today. Um, let me pray. <clears throat>